The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Denny, this is a little awkward. Green people hired Crane, Poole, and Schmidt on my recommendation. And the only reason I made that recommendation was because you told me your firm was extremely green. Yeah, so? Well, it's not. Not really. What are you talking about? We have all these... Uh, curlicue light bulbs. Yeah, well, there are major areas where this firm is not green. You have no solar panels, no carpool policies. I discovered you recently threw away your old computers, which contain hazardous waste. Oh, Walt. And which will probably wind up in the landfill. Meanwhile, green people is paying your firm legal fees in the six figures every year. Bottom line, Denny, get green or I'll recommend we hire another law firm. Walt, may I say something? Okay. I love the environment, I really do. And every day, I kiss the ground I walk on, as do many others, because I am, after all, Benny Green. Oh, God. What's this, you got a tick? Oh, Denny. I take this cause seriously. I'm committing the rest of my life to it. I told you it was important for our law firm to be environmentally conscious. You're wearing blinking antlers, for God's sake. Walt, it's Christmas. It's the time of year to embrace giving and getting and waste and gluttony and all the things that made God in this country great. Don't be such a girl. Now I am getting angry. Well, so am I. Frankly, I hope this planet survives. I really do. But I am getting sick of you smug, hybrid-driving socialists telling the rest of us how to live our lives. I'm rich, okay? I like to guzzle a little gas now and then. I, I keep my thermostat at 72 during the winter. and I prefer night games and football. And I am fed up with you global warming wussers raining on my electric parade. You can be such an arrogant, ignorant ass. So can you. Nobody comes into my office and ruins my Christmas with a load of save-the-planet atheist communist crap. Off you go now. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, April 2nd. 2015. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Mary Lou Ambrosio. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, it's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to our show today, where we have quite an interesting array of topics, ending the show, of course, with something we haven't discussed in a long time, global warming. And, you know, green people are really red people, Mary Lou. That's yes, the, I know. Th- that's the truth of the matter there. And, of course, uh, I understand you're going to be talking about... Yeah, well, a number of events lately have me wondering what the heck is wrong with kids today Uh. (laughs) and questioning whether they're getting an education or indoctrination at school. You may have seen the results of a Globe and Mail poll recently on the question of wearing the niqab while taking the oath of citizenship. Well, the majority of Canadians across party lines agree with the government that women should remove facial coverings when taking their oath. And a smaller but still significant majority also agree with the Prime Minister when he says that the burqa is a symbol of oppression. I was quite heartened heartened by those results, except there was one demographic that thought that, that didn't agree, that thought it was a question of religious freedom, and that group? Young people. So this got me thinking about what I believe is trained ignorance. 
So that's kind of what I'll, I'll be talking be about. Interested to hear where that leads. For my part, I'm going to beginning 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 the show, starting the show, if I can even talk, <clears throat> with some feedback that we've received on some of our past broadcasts. Uh, basically over the issues of capitalism, freedom, um, a number of issues that we discussed. And one of them, even the basic show in general. And this one we got from someone named Todd, one of our regular listeners, and he says, Hello, I enjoy your show, which I download and listen to. It's ironic that most of what's discussed on the show, titled with right, are topics about things that are wrong. <laughs> I'd like to challenge you to find at least one good news story to fit into your shows. An example of how capitalism or freedom or people went right. And that's from Todd. Thanks, Todd. Um, you know, his question got me to thinking because I thought there might be a lot of other people who might have yeah. the same kind of, uh, you know, thought in some form in their minds. And I realize that there's more than one way to answer this question, and I don't even know if I'm going to get to the root of it yet. But, you know, it's just the same as what we discussed last week, you know, uh, just as you can't have an atheist unless you have a theist, <laughs> you can't have a right without a wrong. Mm -hmm. That's what you're doing. You're contrasting those things. In fact, just about everything is right, or legal anyway, to do except those very few things that are wrong to do. Right and wrong are judgments, not events, B but about actions versus consequences. And whereas good and evil are words we use to describe the intentions of those actions, a good intention could end up being a wrong call. A bad intention could conceivably result in a correct decision about a specific event. Things going right and things being right are two very different things. Capitalism and freedom are economic and social conditions that are the consequence of things being right and going right in a moral and philosophical sense. And we're not attacking or criticizing things that, quote, are wrong, but more the irrationality of the ideas that attack what is right, mm -hmm. namely rationality. In a capitalist system, now here, here's where it gets a bit tricky. In a capitalist system, when a business fails, and fails because the market did not respond to the business or the business was run poorly or corruptly, then the failure of that business would be an example of something going right, as far as capitalism and freedom are concerned. Right. But business owners who are going under themselves, they might not see it that way. So is that a, an example of a success or a failure? I guess that's a judgment call, isn't it? But if the business failed because the government intervened by setting prices for the goods and services offered by that business or by prohibiting a particular person's participation in the marketplace in favor of another player's monopoly, then not only would that not be capitalism, there's a catch-22 you get into, that would be an example of something going wrong, both for the business that failed and for the business that would see its monopoly as something that went right. They would see the monopoly as a good thing. So, you know, when you use the phrase went right, it suggests some action that was made in favor of some interest. And it's funny, to quote Thomas Sowell, who we'll be hearing uh, say these very words a little later in the show today, this notion of picking out something and calling it a good thing, like education, affordable housing, he said everything is a matter of a trade-off. Right. So I suppose that in every instance when someone has a choice, a trade-off to choose between, as opposed to having zero or one option, that would be an example of something that went right. And in the broadest sense, our democracy is an example of something that went right until it started going wrong, until it stopped becoming a democracy. It's nothing new to our age or era. The same patterns of social setbacks and advances have occurred throughout recorded history. 
and uh, we just haven't grasped the lesson that we need to learn from history. Now, we had another comment, a couple comments uh, from a fellow, our listener Joe, who uh, on this subject was on capitalism in Ontario Hydro that we spoke about a few weeks ago. And he wrote, there's no natural price discovery mechanism in any markets and haven't been for quite some time, therefore there's no capitalism, only fascism exists now, the merger of state and corporate powers. And Joe certainly hit the head, the nail on the head with that one. And, but I love the phrase, pri price market mechanism, because that mechanism is a free market. It's the only way to determine the objective value of something, because free of government market prices are the only way to know both what people are willing to pay for and what business and labor is willing to sell its products and services for. That's why monopolies, whether business or laborers, are always against free markets because that would reveal the true value of the services we pay for and the fact that the monopolists are ripping off their customers. And another one from Joe we got, this time I didn't agree with him. This one was on objectivism and he writes, objectivism is highly overrated. We all have a subjective point of view due to the fact that we cannot observe the universe from anyone else's point of view using our senses other than our own. Hence we end up with everything, with everyone having their own version of the truth and just because a majority can claim one thing, it does not necessarily make that thing true. How often has the majority of scientists been wrong because they refuse to accept valid information that has been known for any length of time? Science throughout time has proven the majority of them have constantly been proven wrong and may at best be considered temporarily correct. If change is constant, then it stands to reason, so must our opinions change constantly as new data is discovered. This is known as the half-life of facts. Well, you know, I would have to respond to Joe that objectivism is not overrated, it's overattacked, and unjustly so, and Joe has said nothing to refute any aspect of objectivism. Everything he said basically illustrates both the value of and the need for objectivism. It's completely subjective. Moreover, unlike the scientific process, which objectively works to seek truth and changes with each new valid discovery, that meaning those that are consistent with the reality that, that seems to be denied, subjective viewpoints never change and are, and are impervious to anything objective or to reality itself. You know, you don't have opinions about facts. One either accepts a fact or not. <coughs> Having recognized something as a fact, this is the choice between right and wrong, good and evil. Irrationality is the evil, rationality is the good, and that is a fact. Now, um, Where's another one here? We have another one here from uh, Simon, who who has written to us yes. before, and that's Simon O'Riordan. I'll, I'll say his name because he's talked on the show before, and we've played some of his great stuff. And he says, objectivism is good, he says. I treat it with friendly ignorance. It's most objectivist I can't stand. Good show, incidentally, <laughs> he says. <laughs> and I'm thinking, well, his comments seem to reflect the exchange between Tom Snyder and Ayn Rand that we played last week. At the very opening of his interview, he confessed his friendly ignorance of not having read her books, and she said, well, that's okay, that's not an issue. She acknowledged it's not necessary for everyone to have a fundamental technical understanding of, of philosophy or even of freedom, but it is necessary for those who we place at the head of a society's institutions, public or private, not, not to remain in friendly ignorance, or the ignorance will soon overwhelm the friendly. And, you know, from my own experience, I have to say that uh, most Ayn, Ayn Rand's fans are not in the cla class or category that he's talking about. They're pretty down to earth. They're not what we used to joke about calling them Randroids. And, uh, but of course, proper judgments must be made. And that's one thing Rand always said, one must never fail to pronounce a moral judgment. 
and which could be as uncomplicated as just saying, I disagree when yeah. you're confronted with an opportunity to do so. A society's philosophical foundations and roots are reflected in its culture, or in what Rand called a sense of life, which captures those philosophical tenets in an, in an emotional and unfocused way. But our leaders should be focused, and they should be focused on these values in a much more critical and affirmative way if the culture's to survive. The positive values and the philosophical principles that actually make those values a reality in the real world are what need to be taught aggressively, consistently, and in the spirit of eternal vigilance. There's no way for a previous generation to pass on that knowledge and those values without this process, because humans do not biologically inherit knowledge. That's the key to the long-term solution behind everything from capitalism to Islamism. That's why any culture's basic education curriculum is critical to that culture's survival, Definitely. which is something we'll be talking about when we yeah. return from this. But coming up next here, we're going to be listening to Thomas Sowell's in conversation with Peter Robinson on his show Uncommon Knowledge, and they'll be talking about um, everything from um, higher education to what's good and what's bad, and to the green movement, all subjects on which we'll be touching on uh, today. Let's, let's, let's give a listen in. All right. A few clips of the President of the United States delivering his State of the Union address earlier this year. Clip number one. Higher education can't be a luxury. It is an economic imperative that every family in America should be able to afford. Higher education an imperative. All he's asking is that all young Americans should have the same opportunity to get a really good education that Tom Sowell had. Tom? I love the way, the use of the word opportunity. Uh, you know, I had as much opportunity to become an NBA star as Michael Jordan had. It just happens that there was some difference in skill. And so the same thing with education. There is no point trying to run people through institutions that they have very little interest in. Uh, and that they may not be suited for. Uh, in fact, I would argue that one of the problems of American education is you have a lot of people in college who have no interest in what a college is supposed to be, nor is there any reason why they should. And so the intellect, the, the... So you water down the education of the people who are there to get an education because of the people who are not there for that purpose and who, are, and, and, and and who you're trying to appease in some way. And is the impulse that we just saw of Barack Obama and his supporters uh, to in constantly more and more people run them through college, run them yes. through college, and that's what? That's to enhance the standing of intellectuals in society, to teach more and more Americans to defer to intellectuals? Is that part of what's going on? It's to win votes, frankly. All right. Straightforward is that. President Obama once again. I will not cede the wind or solar or battery industry to China or Germany because we refuse to make the same commitment here. We've subsidized oil companies for a century. That's long enough. This is pre-Solyndra, pre of course. Pre-Solyndra. Tom? You know, this notion of picking out something and calling it a good thing, like education or affordable housing or whatever it might be, uh, everything is a matter of trade-off. Uh, God, uh, what, what did the band say there? That, that he will not cede wind or solar or battery, the battery industry to China or Germany because we refuse to make the same commitment. It's amazing that, that here is a man 
talking about five different industries, in none of which he has the slightest experience. You know, but because he has these degrees from the places you mentioned, uh, he thinks, and, and people have told him how clever he is, he now thinks that he can, can, can do this. So can you... No human being on this planet could do this. Can you explain, Tom, the particular appeal to intellectuals of the kind you describe here of the green movement, of the environmental movement? Oh, it, it shows them again in the role they relish. They're the, they're the wise and noble, forcing the, re forcing the rest of us poor dummies uh, to do what's right, uh, you know, e e even though we don't want to. So it's what your old friend Karl Marx would have described as the will to power. Yes. All right. You don't want to. You don't want to cut them a little slight. That's. I mean, you're just saying it's ego and pride and vanity. Yes. Are colleges across America rife with racism, sexism, and homophobia? If you answer, no, that's absurd, you probably have a fair amount of common sense. If you answer, yes, you're probably a college administrator. To understand how a college administrator thinks, you must first, as the popular saying goes, follow the money. Since 2010, UC San Francisco, UC San Diego, and UCLA have all created new vice chancellorships in diversity, equity, and inclusion, with salaries starting at a quarter million dollars a year or higher. In 2011, UC Berkeley's vice chancellor for equity and inclusion presided over a staff of 17. Yet just one year later, his staff had ballooned to 24. No wonder the number of administrators at the University of California almost equals that of the faculty. Their trick is to set the hiring bar low enough to scoop in more female and minority candidates and then declare that anyone above that bar is qualified enough to trump the most qualified candidate when that candidate is a white or Asian male. But sometimes even that evisceration of standards isn't enough. In that case, the administration simply creates a new hiring category. Remember, these machinations are all in the service of a problem that doesn't exist. It's entirely fabricated. As for the faculty, the idea that any academic department would reject the most qualified candidate simply because that candidate was black, Hispanic, female, or gay is absurd. Not to mention an entirely gratuitous insult to every faculty member on the hiring committees. Universities should be the institution in society that is the most dedicated to reason and evidence-based decisions. But with their crusade against their own make-believe racism and sexism, UC and almost every other American university betray that ideal every day. I'm Heather McDonald of the Manhattan Institute for Prager University. So there we had a couple of clips uh, talking about the state of education or indoctrination mm. today. We had the social, social justice warrior in chief, Obama, saying that higher education can't be a luxury. It's an er economic imperative that every family should be able to afford. Well, that's a high-minded platitude that, when taken from the realm of imagination and into reality, 
becomes an incredibly costly action item that others will be compelled to pay for once a politician has turned a luxury into a right. It's these kinds of reckless and irresponsible promises that have led us to the entitlement society we've become, where people demand that the state provide them with everything that they want and for free. As Sowell said, we have the wise and noble intellectual intellectuals forcing the rest of us dummies to do what they think is right. But they don't have any concrete suggestions for how to pay for such lofty ideals. It would appear they don't even consider what the impact of meeting such promises may be on the economy, on small businesses, on the possibilities of innovation in the future. Apart from anything else, all of this makes me think it's probably a good thing my children didn't pursue what passes for higher education these days, since it means they've avoided becoming steeped in the self-indulgent regressive thinking that would probably make it impossible for us to have civil conversations anymore. <laughs> but is it only in the universities? No, it starts a lot earlier than that, and it's deliberate. Educational reformer John Dewey said in his book, Democracy and Education, which was written in 1916. We may produce in schools a projection of the type of society we should like to realize, and by forming minds in accordance with it, gradually modify the larger and more recalcitrant features of adult society. Recalcitrant, Bob, that's what we are. Yes. And if that means resisting their ideas of how people should think, then guilty as charged. Now, some TV viewers may recall a story they covered in 2012. It was uh, of Jesse Sansoni, the young father from Waterloo, who was arrested, strip-searched, had his house searched, and had his children taken away because his four-year-old daughter drew a picture of a gun in oh, crayon. Do you remember yeah. that? Oh, yes. I like to think most people who heard that story thought, oh, my God, what madness. <clears throat> Many of us likely hoped that it was just one unhinged teacher in one school. But when Sun reporter Chris Sims went to the school board to ask whether or not they were satisfied with the actions taken by the teacher and the school, the superintendent of education at the Waterloo Region District School Board defended their actions, saying in part that educators were co-parents, and he therefore felt they did what was required of them. The stunned reporter asked him what he meant by co-parent, since she, and likely everyone listening, wasn't familiar with that term. His response was, by co-parent, I'm talking about teachers and parents working together to support children as they grow up. And so those relationships are important to us, and we value them. But we also understand <clears throat> that within the context, it may be required for us to bring forward a disclosure, because it's our legal requirement to do so. What? <laughs> Oh, gee. <laughs> Who the hell knows? I don't think the question of what he meant by co-parent was cleared up with that answer. But the one thing that we do know is that that term was very revealing, demonstrating that indeed progressives are in charge in the schools. And that with them in charge, kids would no longer be learning facts and how to think, but instead being taught what to think and how to behave. Whether it's the obsession with rape culture and the patriarchy and microaggressions, <clears throat> the hatred of capitalism and the warm embrace of Marxism, whether it's how easily persuaded they are to hate their own culture, their receptiveness to the idea that we're nothing but colonists. Uh, they never question the premise of what it is that makes them think we, in the West, have some kind of monopoly on what is, after all, just human behavior that all humans have been guilty of at some point in history. 
Yet we still only hear about white privilege, male privilege, and even hetero privilege. So where does this all come from? And why has it had such resonance with young people? They express their first world problems completely oblivious to what real oppression is, what real hatred is, what real poverty is, and what real despair looks like. The young survey respondents I spoke of on that Globe and Mail poll, is it fair to think that if they had been given a deeper and more meaningful education, they might come to a different conclusion about the NECOB and see that it's more related to culture than religion? Maybe in learning some factual history, they'd come across pictures of young women on college campuses in the early 1970s in Iran, for example, where if you saw those pictures, it would look like any picture, any campus university or campus uh, in, in the U.S. or in the West. Um, maybe that would lead them to think that about what is happening in the Muslim world, perhaps causing them to notice that there is a battle going on over there between fundamentalists and reformers. And that might lead them to take a different position, one that supports those who wish to reform and modernize their religion, and dare we say it, progress, rather than siding with the theocrats. Whether the message young people are receiving is coming passively from the culture around them because it's just in the air, or more, or more overtly from teachers and professors during their time in school, there's no question that young people are learning a very anti-intellectual manner of thinking from their postmodern overlords. Rex Murphy recently put pen to paper on this subject in an, in an article that appeared in the National Post on March 27th, entitled Rise of the Cosmongers. He asked, what is more dismal than the modern campus with its litany of safe spaces, its protection from offense, its bleats about microaggressions and chatter of white privilege and the state of hysteria over the rape culture. The new model of the university risks becoming a cocoon of self-indulgence and actual anti-intellectualism. Administrators in particular take a cra craven posture before any challenge that might land them in the minefields of identity or gender politics. Uh, what's so disturbing about all of this, Bob, is that, that it's our our, cult, our faith in our culture in the good things we have is being weakened and undermined at a time in our history when we can least afford it. Uh, okay, we're going to be listening to Camille Apalia now, is that correct? Yes. And uh, she's certainly outspoken. This is from a recent TV interview with yeah, Nick Gillespie. Yeah, we'll have a few things to say about that when we return on the other side of this. Two questions. One is that, I, you know, I actually think you're right, that universities travel on their faculty and the faculty, you know, uh, various studies have shown that the, there has not been a growth in the number of faculty, certainly not of tenure-track faculty, but the big growth in employment in universities is in administrators Absolutely. And, and, and whatnot. And but salaries. If you went to college up through about the mid-80s, uh, and, and certainly from the late 60s through about the mid-80s, there was no in loco parentis. Uh, you know, there were fewer and fewer required courses. It was a kind of temporary right. autonomous zone. Right. Then it started getting ratcheted down, and now when you hear about the student experience, it's about required courses, and it's about um, you know, making people think certain things or not express certain things. And it's so much of the focus of undergraduate education seems to be on kind of indoctrinating people into That's the right. proper ways of thinking. That's right. How does that play into this uh, passivity on the part of the faculty? I mean, is it that the faculty wants to see that happen and so they're happy to have bureaucrats Absolutely. run all, things? All or? I can say is that, is that once again, the, you know, the, the, the people who went into teaching, okay, and mm -hmm. who went to graduate school, okay, are just followers, they're sheep. 
as far as I'm concerned, okay? Let me, let me just say something about the in loco parentis, okay? Mm -hmm. Because when I arrived in college, 1964, in loco parentis was, was operative. I, right. I was in a girl's dorm. We had a sign in at 11 o'clock at night. The boys could run free. They had panty raids. We'd like threw water at them, you know, out the windows and so on. We are the one, my generation of women rose up and said, said get out okay, of, of our, you know, of our private lives. And the university said, no, uh, the world is dangerous. We must protect you against rape, against attack, all these, you know, all those things. And we said, Give well, us freedom. Yeah, Give us freedom to risk rape. That, that is the true freedom. Isn't okay. it true, though, that yeah. what they were trying to restrain was not rape, but rather your sexual, your sexual appetite? Well, I think that they believed they were acting for the parents. Okay? Okay. It was their obligation to protect. And so now everything, and that, this is why I, w I went so much against the grain of mm -hmm. contemporary feminism. When I started, when I wrote uh, about the date rape, uh, you know, hysteria, okay, and I, was, I, I wrote this inflammatory piece in, for Newsday in 1991 that, that, is, that, that still, I'm still uh, being persecuted about it, like everywhere. People are still angry about it. And it, basically what I said was, women, uh, free women must take personal responsibility for their own sex lives, okay? And and they, and they would keep authority figures out of, and, of, and to of, be of clear in no way is this sanctioning sexual violence what you're talking Absolutely. about are cases where people retroactively reclassify yes. something of regrettable sexual experience that they would rather have not consented yes. to I'm talking about date rape, rape okay yeah. which, which is what everyone is talking about right. On, on, on right now okay about the so-called rape culture okay right. my, but that essay that I wrote right. begins rape is an outrage that cannot be tolerated in any civilized mm -hmm. society that's not what I'm talking about I'm talking about this new reclassification okay of people getting drunk going on a, on a date going to fraternity houses and women not taking responsibility for their own behavior okay I, I said the gay men for thousands of years have been going out and having sex with strangers everywhere. They know they can be beaten up. They know they can be killed. Okay, what, what is this? What women are like? Oh, we must be protected against even even our foolish choices. Okay, it's up to men to do. What this is? This is ridiculous. This, this is an intrusion. Okay, it, it, into okay the, the the civil liberties of young people to have this kind of this kind of vampiric parent figures in the administrators hovering over watching watching well, supervising people's sex lives. In Europe, there's nothing like this. Okay, people, there's no idea that the university of Paris is concerned about the dating lives of the damn students. Well, they also they don't have sports teams and they don't have dorms. Right, going, exactly. Right? So, okay. It's this residential college thing. Okay, this this vision of college as summer camp, as club med. That's the, this is this is the folly but it's actually, of it's American more, education. It's more re-education camp now, right? It's camp rather than let us yeah. give you the, uh, the the incredible gym with the exercise equipment. Let us give you the thousand choices in the cafeteria. This has nothing to do with education anymore. Okay, maleducation. Okay. Is, is being committed from coast to coast in the United States. Point of view, okay. Uh, no college administration, okay, should be taking, taking any interest, whatever, okay, in the social lives of the students. None, okay. If a crime is committed on campus, it should always have been reported to the police. Right. Okay? I absolutely do not agree about any committees investigating any charge of sexual assault. Okay, either either it's a real crime or it's not mm -hmm. a real crime. Get the hell out, okay, and so on. So so you get this the expansion of the campus bureaucracy, okay, with this it's absolutely Stalinist, okay, oversight and. 
and microscopes. And, and the, but the, the students, I have been raised with helicopter parents. They want it. The students mm -hmm. of today, okay, are they're, they're, they're utterly unformed. Okay, not necessarily in my school, the art school. I'm talking about the, the, the elite schools. The, oh, so the, it's those kids over at that other no, no, school. No, it's, it's the grade grubbers. Yeah, okay? yeah. It's the grade grubbers, the, the, the bright yeah. overachievers. I'm not at that kind of school, okay? I, I'm at an art, a school of arts and communication, okay, where, where people already are, have a vocational trend, okay? To be admitted here, you have to already have a vocational aptitude, okay? Mm -hmm. the, but it, I'm talking about the, you know, the, yeah. the Ivy League. Now, I've encountered these graduates, okay, of Harvard, Yale, University of Pennsylvania, and Princeton. I encounter them in the media, okay? And, I, and they, people in their 30s now, some of them, okay, their minds are like jello. They know nothing. They've not been trained in history, okay? They have absolutely no structure to their minds. They're, they're, their emotions are, are unfixed, okay? So it's in the banality of contemporary cultural criticism, okay, of academe, okay, the, the absolute collapse, okay, of any kind of, uh, of intellectual discourse in the U.S. is the result of these colleges, okay, which should have been the, the best, okay, and have produced the, the finest minds, instead of having retracted into caretaking. The whole thing is about approved social positions and, and, a, and a kind of misty love of humanity, okay, without any direct knowledge, okay, of, his of history or economics or, 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 or anthropology. Maybe the university is not the place where that sort of stuff is happening anymore. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a shame? You know, I hate to say it, but when I listen to Camille Paglia talk, and she's so hyper, she reminds me a bit of Lily Tomlin back, <laughs> back on Rowan and Martin's lap and back in the 70s. Do you yeah. know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. And, uh, but she has so much to say, and you can see she's just busting to get it all out. Yeah. And just a few of the points she brought up there I could, I could spend ages on, like no structure, unfixed mm -hmm. emotions. Absolutely, yeah. and, and, and this is one of the reasons I was thinking about her as I was talking about before, with the battle raging in the Muslim world, our, um, our lack of resolve, you know, and, and understanding what's going on over there, maybe if we had some historical mm -hmm. perspective, people would be able to understand mm -hmm. it and see where this could go, well, where this that's is going. That's exactly, if you don't have the context yeah. in which you're seeing the information, how yeah. are you going to interpret it? My goodness, yeah. anything could happen, couldn't it? Absolutely. And does. <laughs> and you know, and there she was talking about uh, maleducation being committed from coast to coast, I think she's right, and also about that in loco parentis that is a big problem. Um, and so Camille, Camille Paglia, author, professor, social critic, and dissident feminist, who she's been talking this way since the early 70s. And I think she was very prescient. And, um, and she spotted this anti-intellectual, anti-reason trend that was beginning to take hold in academia, academia while she was still in university in the uh, late 60s, mm -hmm. early 70s. And I've had occasion to mention her on this show before because of my great admiration and appreciation for her, despite the fact that she still considers herself on the left politically. Um, I d first discovered her in 1990 when I read her book, Sexual Persona, uh, you know, and having declared, I'm similar to her, having declared myself a feminist quite young, by the time I was uh, a young teenager, I had read all of the standard tracks. And at some point, I began experiencing some cognitive dissonance with those voices and messages. So as a new wife and mother in 1990, what she said made sense to me. And my respect for her only grew as I saw exactly how prescient she'd been, not only about feminism, but academia. So clearly, we see the problems with the very various isms and the ists who push those isms that only cause division, inequality, and chaos in society, the exact opposite of what they said would result with their cures. 
the postmodernists are just, it's just about in every sphere, they've taken us beyond backwards to an ugly, hostile place where there is no peace and no prosperity, only dissension and disagreement. And she also, as I said, noted that trend in the admin growth of the administration and the cost of bureaucracy that would, as we see now, it's actually crippling uh, um, the economy and students. Uh, um, well, so yeah, it's a big disaster. <laughs> it, it really is. I was looking at some numbers regarding uh -huh. the uh, debt, student debt that's being carried in the U.S. and Canada. It's horrifying. I don't know how these people, these young people are going to, start out in life and never have in, the things in debt. that they're going to get used to what it's like uh, being in government yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah they're training for government aren't they <laughs> well the, the massive debts will make it almost impossible impossible for them to start a family own a home and live the kind of middle class life that previous generations enjoyed and i find that very sad but in the diversity bureaucracy that um the um heather mcdonald was talking about it's, I find it interesting. There's room for all kinds of di differences, Bob, except for viewpoint diversity. Uh, and I love Kate McMillan from Small Dead Animals likes to say, what's the opposite of diversity? University. <laughs> it's so true. But, it, you know, it's for, so for this inferior education, we've created this costly bureaucracy, uh, massively expensive uh, you may have seen something actually in the news in, here in London, Bob, about the um, Amit Chakma, the university, our, our professor up here at Western. Well, it, it's all over the radios yep. these days, and everybody is just, well, complaining about it and amazingly, it's as though, you know, it's already after the fact, it seems to me. Well, in fact... Where was, was everybody when all this was happening? And what I'm trying to figure out is, because I knew that his, how high his salary was a couple of years ago. A friend mm -hmm. of mine was talking about it. And, um, but I, I, did, I hadn't heard anything in the news, but this time now, there's been a subsequent article that's gone back a couple more, couple years ago and said, yeah, this isn't the first time he's made over a million dollars. So as you say, where, why wasn't that mentioned before? How did we miss it before? I guess it's, uh, it's trendy now, but I, so I checked, uh, I actually went on the you know, Western's website to see if they're, they've fallen prey to this diversity thing. And uh, yes, Did absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I was wondering we that had... myself because it sounds so familiar yeah. to what I see going on at the campus here. Oh, yeah. And you, you, you have no idea if you don't see the Gazette every day, for yeah. example, or, or frequently, how many things are going on on campus that fit in, into exactly what we what heard Camellia <laughs> talking about. Yeah, yeah. And so we know this isn't just a California disease. So I saw... Um, All these diseases are catching. Oh, my God, it's terrible. <laughs> we, it, it says on the Western website, um, I'm trying to find this. Western is committed to equity and employment and is proud of the diversity of its workforce. And I can't tell you how many times I saw the word diversity and equity and yeah. et cetera, um, which, of course, tells us why everything is costing so much. But those words are easy to say. Um, you can say it over and over in every possible context and situation, but uh, like I said, what, what's tragic is the one diversity they don't talk about or think about is diversity of opinion. Yes, and isn't that ironic? And yeah. 
Uh, how about education itself? Is there any real education going on? Is there any diversity of that yeah, in terms of... Apparently not. It's only one way of thinking. And I actually noticed that too in this other controversy that's happening in the U.S. where the Duke University head coach mm -hmm. um, refused to make a statement about uh, saying he was in opposition to the religious... Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the act. Well, it doesn't matter. Yeah. But anyway, I, I know what you mean. about the same-sex... <clears throat> marriage legislation and basically he's being chastised for not for saying no comment apparently just trying to stay out of politics when you're a coach isn't good enough you have to oh, toe boy. the line yeah we live in political times that's Absolutely. for sure well that's very fascinating mary lou i gotta tell you um you know we're, we're going to be doing a little change in subject here now, moving on to the the issue of global warming and all that. You know, I don't know if you saw it in the paper, just the other day, Antarctica just experienced, uh, apparently at Argentina's Esperanza base, what may be the warmest temperature ever recorded there just last week on, Mar on March 24th, 17.5 degrees centigrade. Uh, just about as warm as it's supposed to be in London, Ontario today, <laughs> which is which is our first warm day. Yeah. And they last came close to that temperature way back in April of 1961. Of course, in both cases, these records occurred in what would be the late summer of the Southern Hemisphere because they're just coming out of their summer, as which as with the Northern Hemisphere during the other half of the year. That's when we often get our warmest weather too, late late August and September. Not always though, but. Uh, we're going to move on now, and uh, here's a bit of entertainment for you on the whole issue of green. First of all, I'm an enormous admirer of your organization, Green People. I think you're all to be congratulated. Well, thank you. I do notice, however, the beverage your council's drinking. Do you know, sir, that the bottled water industry uses more than 1.5 million barrels of crude oil to manufacture their plastic? I know that we use oil to make products. I do live in this century. They happen to use a lot of oil enough to fuel 100,000 cars for a year. They also use vast amounts of fossil fuels to distribute their product. What's worse is less than 25% of these bottles are actually recycled. The rest end up in landfills or the ocean. It's not really green at all to be drinking bottled water. I'm not about to ask people to go green at the expense of their own health. Oh, actually, it doesn't serve their health. Scientists say that bottled water is no better for you than tap. In fact, it could be worse. The EPA standards are looser, and in some cases, the bacterial count is almost double. This is not a referendum on water. I beg your pardon. Do you eat meat? Huh? I only ask because studies show eating meat contributes more to greenhouse gases than driving a car. Denny says you too often have ribeyes together. Is that true? First, I don't believe that eating meat is worse for the environment than driving a car. It is. Contaminated runoff from slaughterhouses is a major source of water pollution. Livestock itself contributes 18% of greenhouse gases just from, pardon me, farting. That's more than all the planes, trains and automobiles put together. Do you eat meat, sir? I'm not sitting here saying people need to go vegan. But Denny Crane's firm is assaulting the environment. I mean, the man drives a, an outrageous gas guzzling... What do you drive, if I may ask? I drive a hybrid. Oh, dear. Oh, what, are you telling me that's bad, too? Well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but hybrid batteries contain nickel that is mined and smelted in a plant in Sudbury, Ontario, a plant that has caused so much environmental damage and acid rain that NASA uses the so-called dead zone around the plant to test its moon rovers. I think a board member of Green People might know that. That nickel then has to be shipped off via massive containers to a refinery in Europe, then off to China to be made into nickel foam, then to Japan to be manufactured, then finally all the way back to America. All that 
just to put a single hybrid battery into a car. When you combine all the energy it takes to build and drive a hybrid, it adds up to almost 50% more than it does to build and drive a Hummer. They also save on fuel. In terms of money, perhaps, but because they do so, studies show people are driving more. Hybrids might result in more fuel consumption than gas cars. I imagine you do know that. No? Denny Crane wasn't honest. He told Walter Bonner that Crane, Poole & Schmidt was a green firm. It wasn't. I don't know about you, but I'm a little sick of the widespread practice of the tell the customer what he wants to hear. Whatever it takes to get the account mentality. It's fraud. They're not green. It's bait and switch. It's wrong. These people need to be held accountable for their lies and deception. You have to help hold them accountable. Even if my client eats meat and I drink bottled water. It's hard to know what the hell is good for the environment these days. One minute, we're being told, eat farmed salmon to spare the wild stocks, while another study says that may be the worst thing we can do for the wild salmon. There's a new study out that says people contribute more to greenhouse gas emissions by walking than by driving. Since the increased energy it takes to walk, makes people eat more, which causes the proliferation of slaughterhouses. Ridiculous? Oh, could be. Everyone talks about ethanol. Well, it turns out to fill one SUV with pure ethanol would require 450 pounds of corn, or roughly the amount of calories to feed a person for a year. That's just one tankful. We've heard how Hybrid cars may not be all they're cracked up to be. I mean, the information can sometimes become so contradictory, it's confusing. And as a consequence, it's easy to feel overwhelmed and an utter sense of futility, especially when people are running around screaming, the end is near. One thing that would really be helpful is if all the chicken littles would just stop yelling doom, <sighs> calm down and instead promote a little common sense. We're not gonna stop driving cars. People are not going to give up meat or Christmas. Now we can stop eating farm salmon. We can recycle. We can drive less. We can use uh, fluorescent light bulbs, little things. Maybe if we get the message out that the little things really make a difference, We'll all start doing them. But suing people for not doing enough. That's just silly, isn't it? Well, it's no sillier than having annual Earth hours to criticize people for not doing enough, isn't it? With electricity yeah. prices being what they are, do you really need encouragement to save money on electricity? No, I wish yeah. I could. Yeah, but of course, saving money is not the objective of the no. earthers, nor using power at all at any price, you know, that, or not using power at all at any price. That's their real objective. Believe it or not, I and a group of my friends actually watched that very episode of Boston Legal for the first time this past Saturday night, right in the middle of Earth Hour. 
you know, there were a lot of statements made during that entire exchange about being green from bottled water to eating meat to hybrid vehicles that I actually disagree with and others which I do agree, particularly with the calm down and get sensible approach, yeah. right? But if you've never seen Boston Legal, I would best describe it as a comedy drama farce in the respectable literary sense of that term, a farce being a comedy employing mm-hmm. ludicrous or exaggerated situations. That's sure what that show was about. And, uh, of course, uh, you know, they're talking about each side being fraudulent because they're calling themselves green. Well, for me personally, and for the longest time, whenever I've heard the word green, it's that word that I use to associate with fraud and deception. As soon as somebody starts selling me something, they, oh, it's green. I'm going, well, yeah, I'm not buying green. I'm yeah. buying whatever it is. I'm buying. You know, and I can't help but feel that when I hear a business or someone's saying that they're selling something on green, I feel like I'm being being scammed. Mm-hmm. Uh, politically, of course, being green is just another shade of red. The target is always the same, anything associated with capitalism. Uh, you know, the socialist reason for attacking capitalism is that all changes, uh, is that all that changes with each shade of red. You know, you have red Tories who want to manage the economy for business, red Democrats who want to manage the economy for labor, and red liberals who want to manage the economy, well, just for the sake of it, (laughs) right? It's been a long time since we've discussed global warming on this show, mostly because as a topic of major media interest, things have actually cooled down a bit. As I see it, the debate has effectively ended for the average guy in the public who's been able to see through most of the green propaganda. But no matter how much evidence accumulates on one side of the debate or how much lack there is on the other side, nothing stops the government, no matter how irrational its justifications for doing what it's doing sound. Let's face it, carbon taxes are just taxes. The carbon's arbitrary. It's just relative to the objective. I mean, taxes, that's what they want. You know, your hydro bill is now far more a tax than a payment for a service received. Right. London Hydro, which has made a profit on your hydro bills, is now in the process of transferring some of those electricity taxes from London Hydro to the Corporation of the City of, of London, which is the sole shareholder. $10 million in a one-time dividend payment, and our elected representatives are all looking for ways to spend cash on various vision projects. Now, you sent me uh, a link to an article, Mary Lou, a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, UN official reveals real reason behind warming scare from Investors Business Daily dated February 10th. And it apparently reads, at a news conference last week in Brussels, Christina Figueres, Executive Directory of, Direct, Secretary sorry, of UN's Framework Convention on Climate Change, admitted that the goal of environmental activists is not to save the world from ecological calamity, nope. but to destroy <laughs> capitalism. Quote, this is the first time in the history of mankind that we are setting ourselves to the task of intentionally, within a defined period of time, to change the economic development model that has been reigning for at least 150 years since the revolution, the Industrial Revolution. We're intentionally transforming the economic development model for the first time in human history. Well, writes uh, Investors Business Daily, the only economic model in the last 150 years that has ever worked at all is capitalism. The evidence is prima facie. From a feudal order that lasted a thousand years, produced zero growth and kept workdays long and lifespans short, the countries that embraced free market capitalism have enjoyed a system in which output has increased 70-fold. Workdays have been halved and lifespans doubled. So you can see the the, yeah. the contrast. And and by the way, I'm sh- you know that admission was not a surprise to many of us who have been saying this all along, being accused of being conspiracy theorists for <laughs> oh, our that's troubles. Right. 
you know. And there was an, a very interesting response to that article. I don't know if you read all the posts under it. Not all of them. One of the posts was 10 times longer than the article. Oh. And it was, it was just <laughs> awesome because it had so many references. Yeah. And it's from a fellow who wrote under the name Diogenes. And um, he wrote, the fact is there has been global warming, but the contribution of human-generated carbon dioxide is necessarily so minuscule as to be nearly undetectable, he says. And um, he says, but that's only the beginning. Things I've said on this show before, we've had Mm -hmm. global warming for more than 10,000 years since the end of the Ice Age. And he talks about this little Ice Age, large Ice Age differences Mm -hmm. we've had in history. He said, if we're still having global warming, and I suppose we could presume we are, given this 10,000-year history, it seems highly likely that it's still the overwhelming primary cause of continued warming, rather than our piddling 0.00325 contribution to the greenhouse effect, right? Exactly. The idea, and this is still that fellow writing, (laughs) that we should be spending hundreds of billions of dollars and hamstringing the economy of the entire world to reduce carbon dioxide emissions is beyond ludicrous in light of the facts. The true motivation underlying the global warming movement is almost certainly ideological and political in nature, and I predict that the anthropogenic global warming as currently presented will go down as the greatest fraud of all time. It makes Ponzi and Madoff look like (laughs) pikers by comparison, he says on that. And uh, I thought it was amazing. I agreed with him entirely. Well, one fellow who who named named Corky, he uh, he responded, (laughs) and he says, uh, it's amazing how much BS you can find to support your insane assertions. Now get this. If you're wrong, the Earth is uninhabitable by 2050. If environmentalists are wrong and we do what they're asking, we end up with cleaner air, oh. cleaner water, lower, lower power cost? and water bills, <laughs> chemical-free food, and more w- wilderness to go camp out in. Oh. He says, this really is not a difficult choice. I don't like camping, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know... To legitimately say that the insane assertions of the previous writer was BS, yeah. you'd have to demonstrate why. He yes, didn't do that. He, he didn't, didn't even bother. try. No. You know what he did? He invoked what we call the precautionary principle. Right. And we've thought right. th- this is, this is, there are times to be precautionary, yeah. but not usually in the way people are using it. No, would, and that's the excuse the yeah. governments have been using to spend all this money, taxpayer money. That's right. You know, and it's the same principle a lot of people enjoy or employ, rather, with regards to their belief in a literal deity. You know, well, I'd rather believe in him just in case, right? right? right, right. To me, if somebody believes in God for that reason, they don't really believe in him. That's not I a belief agree. in God. What you're doing is covering your butt. You're not believing in anything. You're yeah. just saying you are so that you're going to fool God, right? I don't think it works that way. No. But in any case, uh, it, and this person wrote, if environmentalists are wrong and we do what they're asking, we're going to end up with, we're not going to end up with cleaner air, water, or indefinitely not lower power or water bills. No. You know, on what planet is this guy Corky living? <laughs> Ontario's environmental governments have certainly demonstrated how green our outrageously high and ever-escalating electricity costs are getting. Yes. There's no end in sight, and and they're promi- promising us increases for the foreseeable years in the future. This is scary. You know, we had Freedom Party way back when we said yep. we're in for a shock with... with, with what was uh, that, 1985 or yeah, something? Yeah, with, with Ontario Hydro. Yeah. Well, we're still in for a future shock, I think, I with agree. Hydro One. And I think uh, that's my cue to turn off the uh, Just Right switch for today <laughs> and to remind our listeners to tune in again next week and join us when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see ya. Color, color into black and white.
A lot of people think that uh, kids say the darndest things. But so would you if you had no education. <laughs> you'd, just be, you'd just be like, I am bike cheese. Because you wouldn't know what words were. I don't have a kid, but I think that I would be a good father, you know, especially if my baby liked to go out drinking. <laughs> I'd be, 